turn for me this evening to uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold, now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight. In fact, I'd rather read verse 6. The man of God, Elisha, said, Where fell it? And he showed him the place where the axe head fell. And he cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. The axe head did swim. My well, friends, my uh, message this evening is the greatest miracle of all. The greatest miracle of all. We're thinking this evening of this minor miracle, uh, the miracle of an axe head swimming. How can iron swim? How can iron that is located at the bottom of a riverbed rise up and float? That's exactly what happened in this incident with Elisha and one of the sons of the prophet. That's against the law of physics. That's against gravity. That doesn't happen in life. We don't see iron coming to the top like that and floating, swimming, as the word says here. It's doing something that's so contrary to nature. It's unscientific. Is it a fluke of nature? Something extraordinary has happened in this particular case? Well, yes, but it's a miracle. It's something that God has done. It's a miracle and a tremendous one it is, but it seems so very small. But yet it is a miracle that's going to relate to us and lead us on to an even greater miracle, the greatest miracle of all, which we will come to mention in just a few minutes. But a miracle here, this particular one, has some very important lessons uh, for us uh, to learn. Let's just go through the narrative first before we come to the lessons. Here is Elisha, the man of God, the prophet of God, and God has already done a number of miracles by him, and he's together with the sons of the prophets, and they seem to be together in some kind of seminary or college. I think uh, it's located in this case at Gilgal. There were three in Israel at, at that time. Uh, here he is with his sons, and uh, they've outgrown the property where they are. Seems like quite a number of are coming to this seminary to, to sit, as it were, at the feet of Elisha and to learn from him. Theology is the subject. They want to learn about uh, God. And uh, the numbers are growing, so uh, the place where they are is too small to accommodate them all, so they decide, verse 2, to move on. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, to the river Jordan, and let every man take a beam and let us make a place there where we may dwell. And Elisha agrees to this. It's a, a good thing to do. So they decide to uh, move camp uh, to the River Jordan, which is about uh, six miles away. Elisha gives the green light uh, for the move. And verse 3, one of the prophets uh, there uh, said to Elisha, Go with us. We value your company, Elisha. You're the man of God, and we want you to be with us. We love to, to have you remain with us. They appreciated him. The others, in, many in Israel didn't. The king of Israel didn't appreciate Elijah. And uh, uh, even his predecessor, Elijah, was considered an enemy uh, of, uh, 
of, uh, of, of the state and of Israel, whereas really the king of Israel, Ahab at that time, was the one who was against the, against the Lord. But here there were people who, who loved this prophet, who loved Elisha and wanted to be with him. He agrees. He says, yes, I'll go uh, with you. And as soon as they arrive at uh, the River Jordan, the work begins. And uh, as these prophets, well, they had no workmen. Maybe they were just too poor uh, to hire workmen and uh, to do the work. They have to do the work themselves. And so they get down to cutting the trees for this new and bigger house that they're building. But as one of these sons of the prophets is felling a tree, chopping away at a tree, no doubt, with great enthusiasm and, and using all the strength that he can, the axe head of that tree, of that, of that, sorry, of the axe, comes off its handle, flies through the air, flies backward, and drops into the, into the water of the River Jordan and sinks down, down, down into the, uh, the muddy uh, riverbed of, uh, of that river, Jordan. And there it stayed. And there it would have stayed forever had not Elisha intervened. And uh, very quickly, uh, we see that this young man, this young prophet, in despair, he cries out uh, to Elisha, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. He said, it's, this, this is uh, not my own property. I borrowed it from somebody else. I, and now it's gone, and I don't have the wherewithal to pay it back. That's why I borrowed it. I couldn't afford my own one, and so I had to borrow this. And now this is gone. I don't have the money to pay him back. All that is behind this cry of despair. What shall I do, he says. The man of God in verse 6, very calmly, Elisha says, Where did it fall? And the man showed him the place. And Elisha does a very strange thing. He, take, he cuts down an, a piece of stick, a branch from a tree, and throws it at the spot where the, uh, the iron fell, the axe head fell, and the iron came up to the top and did swim, float. And uh, Elisha then said to the man, uh, take it up, uh, it doesn't really need to be said, but take it up, uh, put out your hand and take it, and that's what he did. And the man was at peace again. Well, that's the narrative, friends. What are the lessons that we can uh, draw uh, from this? I got five words to give you as headings, just uh, so they help you to remember. But the first word is borrowed, borrowed. The axe head, the axe rather itself, had been borrowed. It didn't belong to that son of the prophet. It wasn't his property. Uh, he was not the owner of it. He just borrowed it uh, for a time. It had been lent to him by some kind soul. And we have to say that all that we have in life really is borrowed. Borrowed uh, from God. All, the, the, all that we have it's really been given to us by the Lord. Our life is not our own. Our life is lent to us. Every breath that we have, every breath that we take, is a borrowed one. It's lent to us by God. All our health is not our own. It's given to us. It's lent to us by God. 
our thinking skills, our reasoning skills. These are all borrowed. All the abilities that we have are not uh, just something that are derived from ourselves. They're given to us by the Lord. God has lent us these things. Oh, they're so varied. What you have may differ from another person's. But whatever you have, friends, really, at the end of the day, it is something that God has lent to you. Here's another thing He's lent to you. He's lent to you a conscience. And each one of us has this. A conscience to know what is right. A conscience to know what is wrong. This is implanted in each one of us. He's lent you a mind to think, to ask questions about life. He's given you a mind to think about Him so that you seek Him. He's given you these things, lent it to you. God, after all, though, is the owner of them all. Oh, but I can't see God. Well, we, it's interesting that in this passage, we don't see any reference to the owner of this axe either. It's invisible. And some people think, well, I don't see God, so he hasn't given it to me. It's all, my all the work of my own hands. But the Bible says, God has given us these things. Dear friends, above all, your soul is a borrowed uh, thing that you have. God has lent you a soul on purpose, deliberately. It's by design that He's placed that within you. It's not by luck, it's not by chance that you have a soul. You have a soul that allows you to relate to the living God that is so different from the animals. Your soul is that inner part of you, that most precious part that you have in life. Thinking you, the soul is the reasoning you, the soul is the one, the feeling you, the person that is within. That's your soul, friends. And it has the capacity to know God and to relate to Him and to know His love and to be in relationship with Him and to love Him in return, to live day by day with Him, to know His grace, to hear His words, to communicate with Him. Oh, friends, uh, this is what you were made for. The animals don't have a soul. And you're not an animal. Don't believe what some people tell you, that you're an animal only, a higher kind of animal. You're much higher, you're much better than animals. They don't have these reasoning skills. They don't have this ability to communicate with God, to worship God, to love God, like you and I do. You're much, much better than they are, friends. You're much more valuable, Jesus said, than the sparrows that fall to the ground. Animals only follow their instincts. They live by their instincts. You're different. <laughs> animal just goes from seeking one meal after another meal. Lunch to dinner, and then breakfast, and so on. And to... Uh, Procreation, and that's all that they live for, basically. Oh, you and I, we seek after higher things, don't we? Better things. All these are indications that we have a soul. But it's borrowed, friends. It's given to us. One day, God will ask for it back. Hand it back. Hand back the soul that I've lent to you. It belongs to, to me. One day, there is a day of accounting, a day of judgment. 
when I must uh, uh, stand before him and give an account of what I've done with what he has lent to me? In what state will you return your soul? Lost or found? Lost or saved? That's the first word. The second word here is despair. Despair. The man who'd lost that accent, well, we see that he was in perplexity and despair immediately. Anxiety gripped him. And you can hear it, isn't it, in his voice when he says, alas, alas, uh, it was borrowed. The word alas is a word to express pain. And he felt the pain even of just losing this accent. We perhaps maybe his uh, the other sons of the prophets would have said, calm down, calm down, it's only an accent. <laughs> it's nothing big, you can always replace it. You don't need to be so anxious about it. But to him, it was caused him great pain. Alas, it was borrowed. And I don't have enough to pay it back. Friends, despair. Are you concerned for your lost soul? You're cut off from God. You're cut off from his blessing. You're not in a good relationship with God. If I'm very direct with you, I will tell you, as the scripture does, God is angry with you because of your sins. Does it not trouble you? Does it not concern you? Does it not cause you any anxiety? Can you just amble through life without any feeling of pain? Alas! My soul is lost. Alas, my soul is without forgiveness. Is there not any concern there? Your sins have separated you from God and from His blessing. He cannot bless you. He will not bless you while we remain in an unrepentant state. It's, it's against His nature to bless the unrepentant. He cannot do it, friends. Doesn't that concern you? Don't you desire God's blessing in your life? Surely you do. Don't you desire to know his favor? Does it cause you any pain? Is there any sigh of grief, any anxiety in your soul that things are not right with you, that you are unsaved, that you're still lost that you're still cut off from God, still under judgment, still on the world to hell? Oh, friends, are you anxious about these things? We worry, we worry about all sorts of things. We worry about losing weight. We worry about losing our hair. We worry what other people think about us. We worry about sometimes very trivial things in life. We worry sometimes about very deep concerns in life, very legitimate things, uh, health or uh, our children and so on. But often we're worried about so many things. Are we ever worried about our soul? Because here is something we really ought to be anxious about. And unless we know some measure of anxiety about it, we probably will never seek the Lord. We will never come to know Him. In the long, long run, we can say, well, yes, the loss of this accent is a very small thing. But the loss of your soul, which is immortal, is incomparably greater. Nothing can compare to the loss of one's soul. But then, thirdly, the 
The third word is actually four words, and that is the word of God. The word of God. The man here in desperation, he cries to the right person. He cries uh, to the prophet uh, Elisha. And uh, for the man of God, he cries to him uh, for help. And he, he said, alas, ma master, for it was borrowed. And uh, he went to the right person. The man of God then said, where did it fall? And it was a good thing, isn't it, that Elisha was with them. It's a good thing that Elisha was there, else that axe head there would never have been recovered. He would have stuck in those muddy waters uh, forever. He would be forever lost, forever out of sight, laid at the bottom of that river bed. But he was recovered uh, because the prophet was there. The man who spoke the word of God was there, and he could do something about it. But what can be done to recover our lost souls? Is all hope gone? Is, is all hope of uh, salvation gone? No, friends, because we have the Word of God. God has done something to recover our souls. God has done something to save us uh, from our sins and from such a lost state. This is the Gospel message. Christ can recover our souls. Christ can forgive us. Christ can save us. Christ can bring us back uh, to the Lord. He alone can remedy this situation. Just like Elisha, and it's God used Elisha to remedy this relatively small incident here. Christ can remedy the even greater situation of our lost souls. And He is here, friends. Christ is here, ever ready to help, ever ready to intervene, ever ready to uh, hear our cry for help. He stands ready to help us and to bless us if only we will cry uh, to Him. There is hope. It's only uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, uh, fourthly, another word, uh, impossible. Impossible. What can Elisha do? He is a son, of, uh, he is a prophet, but what can he do in this situation? Surely this is an impossible situation. Surely this is an irretrievable situation. And what he does is he takes that stick and casts it into the spot where the axe head fell. A piece of wood. A piece of wood has no power of attraction. It's not like another piece of metal to attract the, the axe head up to the top. No, of course not. But it was a miracle. It was a miracle that God did, and the iron floated to the top. Well, it's a little bit of a marvel to us that that happened, but a much greater miracle, friends, than this is available to us, and that's the miracle of conversion, the miracle of a changed life, the miracle of a completely changed life, of becoming a new man, of becoming a new woman. Now, before a person becomes a believer, he's in a terrible state, really, spiritually speaking. He has a heart problem before God. And if a spiritual doctor were to examine that 
that heart, uh, he would say, it's gone. There's nothing more we can do for that heart. It's so entwined in sin and in this world. It's beyond repairs, beyond recovery. And that's what God says really about our hearts. Because before we come to Christ, before a person knows conversion, their hearts are so tied to earthly things. It's like that iron axe head stuck in the mud, so our hearts are stuck in the mud or muddy waters of this world, of our sins, and of the entertainments and the business of this particular life and world that we live in, that we have no inclination or desire to rise upwards to God. We are happy to be in that position, just earthly and just earthbound, and everything is just to do with this world. We have no power in ourselves to raise up ourselves towards the Lord. We love in that unconverted state, that heart is in love with its lust. It's in love with its independence from God, its freedom from God. It loves its desire uh, it, it, to, be, to do as it likes, to do as it chooses. It likes it to be in that place where it can ignore the Ten Commandments and just stifle the conscience. It likes to be in that position. It loves darkness rather than light. It has, the heart has no inclination towards God. It has no desire to open its mouth and thank Him even for the, the big things that come its way. It has definitely no desire to yield to Him and to acknowledge Him as its Maker. Or if it does, let Him be at a distance from me. There's no love for God in this person's heart. Perhaps even hatred of God is there in the unconverted man's heart. How can such a person be changed? How can such a person gain a new heart? How can such a person's life be turned around from being in such a state to being in one where, where they love the Lord and uh, are inclined towards Him? Naturally speaking, it's impossible. It cannot be done any more than the accent could of its own accord rise uh, to the top and float. It couldn't be done. If it's down to us uh, and to our own power, we are powerless to raise, to give ourselves a new heart in such a way. But not with God. Not with God, friends. Uh, the iron has floated to the top, and in conversion, we could say as well, God gives us a new heart. Conversion, friends, is a work of God. It is God giving you a new heart. It is God quickening you, uh, your dead soul, and bringing it to life again. It is God creating spiritual life in you, in a person. It is God's doing. Conversion gives you a, dis a new disposition towards God, a new bend towards God. You begin to think of Him in a different way. You're more inclined to Him. You're drawn to Him. Conversion does that for you. Conversion gives you a love for God. Conversion gives you a desire to please God. Conversion, friends, makes a new man out of you or a new woman out of you. Conversion makes the angry person a gentle person. Conversion makes the 
earthly person, a heavenly-minded person. Conversion makes a proud person a spirit, a humble person. Conversion makes a selfish person a considerate person. Conversion makes a mean person a generous person. Conversion takes a wretched person and makes them an attractive person, a beautiful person in character. That's what conversion does, friends. That's the greatest miracle of all, a transformed life, not a reformed life, completely transformed life. God changing a person's life for all and forever. This is conversion is the greatest miracle of all. Conversion is what the Lord offers to each one of us. There was a young lady and she grew up in a non-Christian home and uh, she went to Sunday school at times and had some idea of the Lord but uh, when she was in her teens she became a bit of a rebel. She had a disability uh, in her left her left arm and uh, it was obvious that she was different from the others and she turned against God because of it. She hated God. Why was she different? Why didn't she have two normal arms like everybody else? And uh, she was very angry with God. She, uh, she uh, skipped school. Uh, in the end, she got in, into bad company and uh, she ended up leaving school altogether. She got into drinks and into drugs. Wretched person. She said she was that was her own testimony. Terrible person I was. She had uh, different. She had gone to relationships. She had a miscarriage again. She blamed God. She turned against the Lord, and uh, she went on in this way and in this kind of a lifestyle, feeling that she herself had, uh, was a wretched person, but against the God. And yet, some yet still there was something in her that made her think about God. And one day when she was passing with her husband uh, past a Christian bookshop, her husband said to her, why don't you go in? And she went into the bookshop. And the lady was, she met was very kind to her. And the lady said, well, would you like to do some Bible studies together? And she agreed. And uh, then she ended up going to the church uh, where uh, that lady was from. And she loved the, the hymns that she heard. And she heard the message. And she heard the gospel. She was saved, and she was transformed, and she's a different person now to what she was then. She herself had ruined her life, she will tell you that. She herself will say she was a wretched person, but oh, the grace of God reached such a person and transformed her permanently, and that uh, is what he can do uh, for uh, each one of us who turn to him. Oh, friends, this is such a blessing uh, here, the blessing of conversion. But just finally, this last word is simply take. Take, verse 7. Therefore, when the iron did float, Elisha said, take it up to thee, and he put out his hand and took it. It doesn't really need to be said, isn't it? Why? Why do you need to tell him to take the axe head? It's obvious that's something that he should do. Maybe it's left on record. For us, as we think about conversion, 
because it's so obvious, really, conversion is something we need. Conversion is something we should just take, but we are reluctant. What's wrong with us? We don't take that which God offers to us, the best gift, the greatest miracle of all that is offered to us, and yet we're reluctant and we're hesitant, and we have the word has to come graciously, kindly from God. Take it. Take it. It's offered to you. Take salvation. It's offered freely to you as a gift. Take conversion. Take the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will change your life permanently as well. How can I, you say? How can I take? You've just told me it's impossible to change. How can I take it? It's very simple, friends. How can I be converted? You look to the cross. You look to to Jesus dying on Calvary's cross. You look to him, you see him there dying to take away sins, and you believe it. You look to him there, and you see him taking away the penalty of your sins, and you say, Lord, I believe. I believe in what you have done there. I trust in what you have done entirely there on Calvary's cross. You look to him, friends, and live. That's what the the scriptures say. Believe in him. Look, look, and live. Look, look, and be saved. Look, look, and be converted. Just a look. Just a look at Christ. Yes. That stick being thrown into the water and the iron coming up doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. So you may say, well, just look at the cross and be saved and be transformed just by looking to Christ. Yes. Doesn't make sense you say, do it, friends. It does. This is what has changed our lives. This is how we have all come to know a true conversion, by looking to the Lord Jesus and trusting in him with all our heart, looking away from ourselves and looking to what he has done on Calvary's cross and believing it with all our hearts, taking it by faith. Well, will you do that today, friends? Will you take up this offer of a new life? Will you receive Christ? Will you give up your sins for Christ and for, this, for a place in heaven? Surely you desire these things. Surely you wish for these things. Surely you, you long for this transformed life, this new beginning, a right relationship with God. Come to him, friends. He is willing to uh, transform you. So many of us here, we can testify to what he has done for us, and we are sure that he will do the same for you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our gracious God, how we praise you once again that Christ has come and uh, died, and we believe in him and all that he has done uh, for guilty sinners like ourselves. Oh Lord, help us to look unto him and to live, to look unto him and be saved, and that our trust may be in him and in his shed blood. Oh Lord, bless us, we pray, by your Spirit, come and transform our hearts and our lives, and make us those who are pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, hear our prayer. 
We ask in our Saviour's name. Amen. Let's uh, close by singing our final hymn, which is number 403. O oh, Jesus, full of truth and grace. 403. Thank you.